As many of you know, as you uh, turn on your TVs, if you have TVs or watch the news or read the newspaper, you know that the uh, 2016 presidential election is fast approaching. And uh, that's, that's all the news there is these days, right? And uh, though none of us are, are completely certain how these elections are going to turn out, who's going to win, one thing that we know for sure is that as November gets closer, you're going to have two candidates at least. I don't know if, we're, if a third one's still on the table or not, but at least two set against one another. And something else you are already seeing and have been seeing and will continue to see as the campaigns continue on is that people, for the most part, are divided on which candidate to support. Within their own party right now, this is especially true in the Republican Party, but also in the, in the Democratic Party, but especially across party lines. Many of you know this to be true in your own families, right? And with friends and neighbors as well. And having studied political science in college, that was my major. And uh, as I've observed politics in my adult years, something that has always amazed me is how polarizing politics can be. How you can have two large groups of people so divided on each one of these issues. I mean, you can have a candidate at one gathering in one place, in one city, making points for their party, and people will be standing up and cheering, and that same candidate in that same city with a different group of people making those same points would be booed and hated for their position. The position of either party on any particular issue, it draws some while it repels others. Politics can be polarizing, and we're going to learn today that the gospel can have the exact same effect. The message of the gospel draws and it repels. It softens hearts but it also hardens hearts. It transforms and saves some while leaving others unchanged and lost. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 19. Remember last week we left Paul in Ephesus. And when Paul arrives in Ephesus, he goes to three different groups of people. And we looked at those three different groups of people last week. And he sees a, a wide range of responses to this gospel that he is preaching. First, he shared Christ to the Jewish disciples of John the Baptist. And we are told that they responded favorably to the message. Next, Paul goes to the Jews in Ephesus. And we're told that many of them rejected the message. They continued in unbelief. They willfully rejected the message. And they even spoke evil of Christianity. And after that, Paul then goes to the Gentiles in Ephesus, the non-Jewish Ephesians. And Luke tells us that Paul met those 
pagan Ephesians where they were in an attempt to take them from where they were and lead them to Jesus. We're told that he did this daily. He reasoned with them daily for two years and we're told that God did miraculous things through Paul to show his power and to also highlight his message through his messenger. And we're told that, that many of the Gentiles responded favorably to the message, but we talked a little bit last week, and we're going to see more this week in our passage for today, that there are some who reject this message. Again, there is a mixed response we're going to see today as we review the last three verses from the passage from last week and as we look at verses 21 through 41 in acts chapter 19 we're going to see once again that when god's gospel is proclaimed when one is faithful to do what God has called for him or her to do, two things normally happen. Number one, the gospel advances. And number two, God's people experience persecution. The gospel advances and the godly get persecuted. We're going to look at both today as we continue to look at Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Today we're going to talk about the progress of the gospel and the persecution of the godly. Let's look at the progress of the gospel first. We looked at this a bit last week. Let's look at it in more detail today. When God's people are faithful to share his message in the power of the Holy Spirit, people get saved. And God's kingdom advances. And get this, at times, societies change for the better. The gospel was changing things in this wicked and godless city of Ephesus and all throughout Asia. Look at verses 18 through 20 again. Luke says this, Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging or telling about their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, which we said last week would have been about $6 million in today's currency. Revival is breaking out. Look at verse 20. I love how this passage ends. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Paul was faithful, wasn't he? Paul was faithful in Ephesus. No matter the response, no matter the rejection, no matter the kickback he received from those in and around Ephesus, and he saw God bring great fruit. In this chapter, we learn that as a result of Paul's Message and ministry in Ephesus. Not only do all the residents of Ephesus, but all the residents of Asia hear the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Here in a minute, we're going to hear from a pagan named Demetrius. Listen to what he had to say about it in verse 26. He says, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. 
Now, remember back in Acts chapter 5 when the Jews were guilty of filling Jerusalem with the gospel? Here we learn that, that Paul had not only filled Ephesus, but all of Asia with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, revival broke out. Paul continued to push. He continued to share. He continued to preach. He continued to minister. He planted. He watered. And God brought the increase. Paul was faithful. And get this, God made him fruitful. And the same will happen with you, believers. Now, our faithfulness does not force God's hand to do what we want him to do. But when we are faithful to do what God has called us to do, God brings fruit. And he did here in Ephesus. We're told that they destroyed these books that were filled with magical incantations and spells that were sold for large sums of money. And the word of the Lord continued, Luke says, to increase and prevailed mightily in this city. In verses 21 through 22, as Luke is in transition from what he's just told about this story and what he's about to tell, he takes a break from the story for a minute and he reveals what's next for Paul during his third missionary journey. Paul was always planning, wasn't he? He didn't hardly even stop to enjoy the fruit in Ephesus. As ministry was winding down there, he knew where he was headed next. Look at verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Man, he was busy, wasn't he? And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So Luke tells us a bit about the work that Paul is going to do when he leaves Ephesus. He wants to pass through Macedonia, and the reason why we learn in his other letters is to take up a collection for the poor believers and the suffering church in Jerusalem. He wants to take them some aid from other Gentile congregations that he has planted. We're going to talk more about that in the weeks to come. He also has his sights set on Rome. He wants to continue in this work of making God's gospel known where he is not known and to advance his kingdom to the ends of the earth. And he's got his sights set on Rome. And we're going to learn as we follow the ministry of Paul that he makes his way to Rome. But one thing he does throughout his ministry is he stops at strategic points along the way from Antioch to Rome, planting churches in these key centers all along the way. And as you continue to follow Christian history beyond the Bible, you see that the gospel from these centers then begin to spread out and they sort of cross-pollinate until the whole region is saturated with the gospel. It's an excellent strategy and extremely effective. Well, notice at the end of verse 22... We're told Paul stays in Asia for a while. Now, why does he do this? Well, we get insight on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 9. Paul sheds some light on the reason why. He tells the Christians at Corinth that he stayed in Ephesus for a while. And the reason why, he says, is because a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And get this, there are many adversaries. As you know... 
And as we've been learning in this study, the enemy does not sit idly by quietly while God's gospel progresses and while his kingdom advances. He does not allow this to happen without a fight. Wherever God's gospel is prevailing and his kingdom is advancing, you better believe that Satan is going to be there and he is going to be fighting back. And this leads us into our next point. We talked about the progress of the gospel in Ephesus and in Asia. Now let's talk about the persecution of the godly. We've already said today, and as we've said throughout this study, Satan is aggressively set against God's gospel and his people. He will not let them minister in God's kingdom advance without a fight. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 23, we see him at work through a group of non-believing pagans. Notice their issue with Paul and God's gospel. Verse 23, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. So notice here that as a result of Paul's ministry and this great response to Christ, this great fruit that, that, that God is bringing, this great revival breaks out, not just in, in Ephesus, but all over Asia. And as a result of that, Luke tells us that there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. They were upset, weren't they? And notice once again, like in our passage from last week, they said that they were upset concerning the way. Now that was a, a title used in reference to Christianity and Christians at this time among other things they were called people of the way which is is fitting right during his post-resurrection ministry Jesus called for his disciples to be witnesses witnesses of what well his person and his works and his teachings and you remember what he said about himself he said this very thing he said I am the way I am the way to God, John 14. The way to be forgiven of sin. The way to be made right with him. Jesus said, I am the way. And remember Peter said earlier in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, that there is no other way. He says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And we know that many of the Jews did not like this message. But we see here in our text today that many of the pagans didn't like it either. They too had beliefs that were opposed to the Christian message. So they didn't like that message that said there is only one way to salvation and your way is not it. They didn't like that. Notice why they didn't. Notice the reason for their opposition. Number one is because this teaching hit them in their pocketbook. It hit them right in the wallet. Look at verse 24 through 25. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. As we said last week, idolatry was big business in Ephesus. And here 
Luke tells us about a man named Demetrius, a pagan, a silversmith, probably a bigwig in town. He seems to be one of the leaders in this city and is a spokesperson for these silversmiths. The silversmiths at this time in this area of the world, among other things, they made silver shrines to the goddess Artemis, and they sold them for profit. This was big business. So Demetrius and these other guys, they they get together, and they basically say this. Listen, guys, he says to them, he says, listen, guys, if, if Paul continues to spread this message and people continue to respond to this message and turn away from worshiping our great goddess, we're going to be out of a job. Now, can we just pause here for just a minute and focus on how great that statement is? How great is it when God's kingdom advances and pushes back the darkness in our world? We ought to praise God for that. That's wonderful, isn't it? That's happening here. Idol worship was big business for these silversmiths, but as Paul continued to preach Christ throughout Asia and as the gospel advanced, they were hit hard in their pocketbooks. So Demetrius is getting these guys stirred up, but he probably knows he needs more than just their support, so he appeals to the greater pagan audience, and he appeals to their piety, and that's the second reason for their response, their their piety. It's the second reason for their opposition of Paul. Look at verse 26. He says, and and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, can you just hear the disdain in mentioning his name there? This, This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. How dare he? And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she, she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. There are several things we need to discuss here, but notice first, this is awesome, Demetrius acknowledges the success of Paul's ministry. Do you see that? He says at the end of verse 26, this Paul has persuaded and turned a great many people away. This non-believing pagan whose business is idolatry acknowledges the success of the gospel. Think about that for just a minute. Of all of the things that happened in Paul's three years in in Ephesus, believe me, there was a lot left out that we don't have, yet God wants this statement included. It's, It's one thing to hear a believer brag on what God is doing in ministry, but listen, when the non-believing world takes notice, something huge is going down, and something big was going down in Ephesus. So, So Demetrius knows something's got to be done so he not only appeals to the pocketbooks of the silversmiths but the piety of the pagans he tells them this paul is persuading many to turn away from what we believe paul is saying that his god is the true god and that jesus is the way and is basically telling us that gods made with hands are not gods which they're not right 
we can just use our common sense and know that. He is criticizing, he says, what is most important to us. He is calling for our friends and family to turn away from our gods. We're in danger of losing what is most important to us if more and more people turn away from worshiping and serving our great goddess Artemis. She may be counted, and our beliefs that we hold dear may be counted as nothing. And by the way, let me break from this for a minute and say, believers, we ought to minister in this way for this to happen. For false belief systems to crumble. That's how we should minister. He says Artemis might be robbed of her magnificence if things continue to go the way they're going. Our great religion, this worldwide system of belief might be done away with. And by the way, let me say this. If it is done away with, which we know it is, I don't know of any worshipers of the goddess Artemis today. There may be a small population still around i don't know i don't think so but if it's not if there if that system of belief is not around today i think we have our answer on whether or not it's true or not right though the church has had its ups and downs the church remains and will remain the gospel continues to spread rapidly god's word continues to be translated he, and and his gospel is being shared at this moment everywhere and God's kingdom continues to advance and will advance until Christ returns Jesus told us this he said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church but Demetrius is is desperate trying to do all he can to stir up the people against Paul and against Christianity and it has the desired effect notice the response the response we're told that a mob forms I don't think this was a small mob. For one, they gathered in a theater that seated anywhere between 15 and 25,000 people. And we get the idea that, that there were a lot of folks in this theater. And notice the characteristics of the mob that, that Luke gives. One, they were an angry mob. Look at verse 28. Luke says, when they heard this, this message from Demetrius, they were enraged and were crying out, Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Many were infuriated by this. They were enraged. The word refers to an anger that is so intense that it often results in passionate outbursts. And that's exactly what happened. They got so mad that they just began to shout loud together, Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. You ever talk with someone about Jesus and the message just makes them angry? I mean, it doesn't matter how you sugarcoat it. It doesn't matter how much you share that message in love. It doesn't matter how convincing you are. They just angrily hold to what they believe. That's what we have here. We have witnessed and said this a lot in this study, but we see here once again the gospel divides. It, it does. Folks, Scripture is clear that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ stirs things up though it brings diverse people together it also separates friends and family like it or not that's what it does why does this happen because the gospel shatters false belief systems we create these false belief systems that provide us comfort in our life these things like we're okay i'm okay you're okay the world's okay those kind of belief systems and you know what the the gospel does it's like throwing a boulder into that quiet still placid 
pond. It disrupts. The gospel shatters worldviews. It tells us, I'm not okay. You're not okay. The world is not okay. We're sinners in need of salvation. And when we share that message, though some turn from their false beliefs and look to entrusting Christ for salvation, others get angry and they lash out against Christ and against his gospel and against his kingdom people. And that's what happens here. This is an angry mob. It's also a confused mob. Look at verse 29. So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. So, so notice here that this mob lashes out against some Macedonian believers. If you stand for the truth, if you boldly profess Christ and follow him and his followers, the world is going to push back. Now, we don't know much about Gaius other than the fact that he was a companion of Paul's, but Aristarchus is mentioned several times by Paul. He traveled with him quite a bit. He was a native of Thessalonica, a committed Christian who spent time with Paul in prison in Rome. These were solid guys. And and when you're solid spiritually, and when you're faithful to do what God has called you to do, you will suffer for Christ's sake. And they do. Notice the boldness of Paul here. I love this. He doesn't want them to stand alone. So notice what he tries to do. Verse 30 and 31. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were Paul's friends, friends of Paul, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Paul was fearless, wasn't he? He didn't think twice about wanting to go into that theater to address the crowd, but the disciples prevented him from doing so. And notice we're also told that some of the Asiarchs urged him to not go in. Now, this is very, very interesting. The Asiarchs were high-ranking Roman officials in Asia, and they urged Paul not to enter into the theater because they were concerned for Paul's safety, and there were probably a number of reasons why. One, because Paul was a Roman citizen, and they did not want a Roman citizen dying at the hands of this angry mob on their watch, okay? So that was one reason. But another reason is we're told they were friends. Isn't that interesting? They, they like Paul. Paul finds some unlikely allies in these high-ranking Roman officials. And they know it's not safe because this is an angry mob. But notice also, it's a confused mob, which is normally the case. That's normally what happens. At times, you will have peaceful protests turn into violent riots because there are always people there that are confused about why they're there. They're confused about the cause. You'll have some people marching for peace while others are breaking into store windows and looting. It happens, doesn't it? And notice that's the case with some here. Look at verse 32. Now, some cried one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. It was a madhouse. And, and we learn that there are many who often oppose Christ and his gospel, and they do so in ignorance. They do. Now, does that remove their guilt? No. But they do so in ignorance. Like Christ said of the mob shouting, 
crucify him at his execution. Many in this group in Ephesus did not know what they were doing. They were a confused mob. They were also a closed-minded mob. That's the third point. They were committed to their unbelief. Look at verse 33. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, we don't know what this group of Jews was putting Alexander up to say, but the mob wasn't going to hear it. They weren't hearing it. All we know is he was going to make a defense. We don't know what he was going to make a defense of. They had found out that this guy was a Jew and many of the pagans in this day, they viewed Christianity as just this kind of offshoot of Judaism. They knew Paul was Jewish, so they associated Alexander with him and they shouted louder and louder for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They were committed to their unbelief like the Jews we looked at last week. They weren't even willing to listen to an alternative. And again, we have these kind of encounters today, don't we? Many have their minds made up about Christianity, even though they've never really even committed to study it. And some of those who do open the scriptures, they do so to attack it. They open the scriptures with their minds made up that it's not true. They're not honestly skeptical, but are blindly committed to unbelief. Well, we've talked about the progress of the gospel. We've talked about the opposition and the persecution of the godly. Now let's look at the results. What results from this gathering of this mob in this theater in Ephesus? Let's be honest, it doesn't look good, does it? It doesn't look good for these Christians in this theater, these Macedonian Christians, Gaius and Aristarchus. So let's Let's look at what results from this mob gathering. Though the situation doesn't look good, I want you to notice here that we see God at work providentially in this situation. Look at verses 35 through 39. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular Assembly. God is really showing here that he is in control. Though he often uses his people to accomplish his purposes, he reminds us here that he can use anybody. He can use anybody. Here in this story, he works through politicians and pagans. Now that should bring us some comfort, shouldn't it? You have a town clerk who was probably the chief citizen of the town, a guy who led these kind of town meetings, 
He's a very important leader. He stands up in quiet, this angry, confused, hard-hearted, and closed-minded mob. Remember, this mob is on the verge of a disastrous riot that would have most likely ended with the death of these two Macedonian Christians along with others that often happens in riots. The ones doing the rioting and innocent bystanders are hurt and killed as well. But this town clerk calms this angry mob and this potential riot. And how does he do it? By appealing to the power of their goddess, very unique, and by declaring the innocence of these Christians. First, he assures the Ephesians that they're worried about nothing. Nothing's going to happen to the pagan beliefs in our city. It's basically what he's saying. Nothing is going to happen to our great goddess. He says Ephesus is the temple keeper to the great Artemis. Notice he mentions a sacred stone that falls from the sky. Many commentators believe that was probably a meteorite that had fallen to the earth that they had taken and they had formed into the image of this goddess and had taken it into their temple. They believed that this was sent down from the great goddess in the skies. I read where there were about 33 of these in the Roman Empire. And this town clerk is reminding them of that so that they will not think that the beliefs and teachings of these Christians would be a threat to their great goddess in the skies. So he appeals to their great goddess, but he also defends the innocence of the Christians. He basically says, they've not spoken against our goddess. They've not blasphemed Artemis. Now, I want you to notice that if Paul would have made his way into the theater, that phrase might not have been said. Paul had been ministering there for three years. I imagine he had encountered a lot of people. That might not have been said, but God is in control of this circumstance. He's keeping Paul out for whatever reason and taking care of this situation. The town clerk also reminded the people that because there was no real threat, they were uh, rioting for no good reason, which was a big no-no at this time. Rome wanted things to remain peaceful so that Roman rule would remain secure. So rioting for no good reason was unacceptable. That's why the town clerk says in verse 40, for we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. Look at verse 41. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Wow. What a change. Things look pretty dim for the Macedonians in in Ephesus. This great mob had formed. They were threatening this work. And in the midst of this mob, the right guy with the right influence, not acting upon emotions, but rationally calms the crowd and influences the mob to leave the Christians alone and exit the theater. And they do. And this great ministry continues to thrive. Do you see God's providence here? He uses this influential pagan to stand in the gap for his disciples so that they could be set free to go back out and continue in this great work of ministry. They played no part in that. This is God working here through providence and through people, good and bad, to accomplish his purposes. This is the way he works, folks. And because 
This is the case. And we serve the same God today, this unchanging God. You know what our response is to be when times get tough for us? We're to respond like Paul and them do here. We are to stand firm and trust God. When tough times come, stand firm, trust God. Continue to be faithful. Because he's the one who is ultimately at work. And he's at work in ways we cannot see. And he is at work in ways we cannot see this very morning. Did you know that? There are some of you here this morning, some coming to the second service who believe that your life up to this point has just been a random set of occurrences. By random chance, you're, you're here where you are this morning. God makes it very clear in his word. That is not the case. Scripture is clear. Nothing in your life has happened by chance. God is the one at work in and through our circumstances and all that you've been through in this life he has been working in and through good and bad to lead you to where you are to this point, this morning, to this church, to hear Christ preach from this stage, from God's word. Listen, folks, God does that work. He's the one who's led you here. These things don't happen by, by accident. Nothing does. All things happen in accordance with God's providence and in God's plan. And maybe God's led you here this morning so that you could respond to his gospel message and be saved, so that you can be made right with him through Jesus. Listen, if I'm speaking to you this morning, if God is doing a work right now in your heart and life and showing you today you're a sinner in need of saving, I urge you today, this is the time. Turn from your sin and give your life up and over to the Lord Jesus and be saved. Let's pray.